Live from the Star Worldwide Network Studios, it's time for Spirituality for Everyday Living with Melinda Vale. As the medium who makes a difference, Melinda and her guests discuss practical spirituality and how it makes an impact on our everyday lives. And now, here's your hostess, Melinda Vale. Well, hello, everyone. The last couple of podcasts, we've been talking about cancer, health and wellness, forgiveness, and I have a different type of a guest for us today, Um, something that I think you'll find very interesting. I have a former uh, sheriff from the sheriff's department who's worked on murder cases. (laughs) (laughs) And I wanted to talk about how intuitive policemen are and how uh, they uh, really find that gut to go after the criminal. And so let me just introduce this man to you. His name is Tom Shorts. He began with the Maricopa County Sheriff's Department in 1982 and retired in 2007. And within that department, he worked as a training officer for two years, narcotics and vice for three years, homicide for 15 years, as well as numerous other assignments. But while working on homicide, he solved some of the most high-profile cases in Arizona history, including the Buddhist temple murders, which I really want to talk to him about, as well as linking 10 mafia murders with a multi-jurisdictional uh, uh, from Arizona to California, multi-jurisdictional. That could hardly come out of my mouth, Tom. <laughs> Just means a bunch of police agencies work together, right? It did. It did. <laughs> and one one other thing before I, I talk to him is that he solved a murder in which the television show Investigative ID did a crime reenactment named Love Me Tenderer, uh, Wicked Attraction, and uh, I want to talk to him about bonding with that subject as well. Welcome, it was Tom. Actually, love be tenderizer. Oh, love be tenderizer. Okay, <laughs> we don't want to. We don't want to miss miss him miss him up with the uh, with the uh, Elvis Presley, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Tom, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you for joining us. Thank you. So, working homicide. Well, working any of those things are certainly uh, you seeing some of the worst parts of humanity. Um, but working homicide, particularly, I think that you probably get to see people maybe at their worst and people at their best, depending on. Tell us a little bit about the Buddhist um, murders and what happened there, the Buddhist temple murders. There's how many monks or brothers were, were killed? Actually, I have seen the worst that people do to each other. I've seen the horrors that go on out there. Uh, the Buddhist temple murders went on and on and on. Uh, our office went to a task force right away. And if, if I recall, there was nine monks and one... Uh, sister? Sister, mm-hmm. I guess she was. Yep. And they were found uh, in a circle at their temple. Mm-hmm. And we got called out... Uh, my partner and I just decided whichever one of us got there first would be the case agent. Luckily, he had the right of way, and I turned in right behind him, so he was the case agent. But we worked the crime scene, which was a major crime scene. Uh, these people sat in a circle as they were executed one by one. 
Oh. And as it went around the circle, you know, our thoughts were, you know, if you're number two or number three, you'd try to make a break for it, but they didn't. Uh-huh. And That's interesting. So they actually met their fate with the the honor of their religious practices is what I think I'm hearing you saying. Absolutely, they did. And uh, that's amazing that they did that. That shows great faith. But for you as a policeman, how do you get those images like out of your head? How do you find your own spirit and your own essence of, of, of working such a horrendous crime and going home and just being regular guy at home? Like, isn't that a hard transition, Tom? It can be, and it is. Uh, I've said forever, when you go to a crime scene and the bodies are there, the evidence is there, it's a crime scene. You don't look at the people like they're people yet. Uh, It's all part of the crime scene. And then once you get done processing the scene, then you get to know the people, you get to know their families, you get to know their kids. Mm -hmm. And then they become real to you. Mm -hmm. And then you're consumed with, and it doesn't matter if if they were drug dealers, prostitutes, whoever they were, they had family that loved them, they had friends that loved them, and once you get through the scene processing, then that takes over. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the point of you being on a spiritual podcast, is to say we're all human beings, whichever side we're on, and that, you know, uh, for a policeman to look at a prostitute, a drug dealer, a mafioso, and, and understand the human part of them so that you can help solve the crime, I think that lifts you into a spiritual side, does it not? Like, to know that this is a human being who has a, a wife or a kid that loves them. and Absolutely, and you follow through just like that. Mm-hmm. You, you get to know the family, you get to know everything in their background, and you kind of bond with them. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's interested in this kind of thing. Otherwise, there wouldn't be shows like Law and Order or now there's three shows on Tuesday night, FBI, and that's my only night to watch TV. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because everybody's interested in how things get solved, and you know everybody wants to talk about forensic science, and everybody wants to you know kind of get an idea of how these work. But what I think is the most significant part of police work from every policeman that I've ever talked to, every sheriff, every marshal, is that it's your gut, it's your intuition, it's your feelings that really are evident in the evidence so that you can see where the evidence is leading you. Am I correct on that? You're absolutely correct. And what we would do is after you process the scene and you're trying to figure out how to proceed, we'll have a roundtable discussion. And all the detectives at the table have their opinion of what happened. If I'm the case agent, I have my opinion of what happened. So We go around the table and they tell us what they think needs to be done. And I would say, okay, you go cover that on and on and on. Then it would come around to me as the case agent. And I felt like I knew what happened. Mm -hmm. But regardless if I was right or they were right, it all had to be covered. Because when you go in front of a jury and those questions come up from a defense attorney, you have to have the answer for that. Right, right. So that way we cover all the bases, we get to the end result, and uh, 
hopefully the bad guy goes to prison. Yeah. So you caught the bad guy for the Buddhist uh, killings. We did. But you had some kind of a, um, you yourself had a little bit of a veer off from some of what the other people thought because you were listening to you by the way uh, to everybody that's listening i know tom tom and i have worked a case together and um so um i know he uses his intuition because we did that together but you know you had this intuitive hit on the buddhist case that other policemen in the sheriff's department did not have they didn't share some of your thoughts but you actually had it nailed huh there was about five of us that uh the focus immediately was on the Tucson Four, and mm-hmm. the higher-ups, the chief, the, the sheriff at the time, everybody was focused on that. Uh, it actually went to task force. It, the Tucson PD was setting up uh, surveillance at everybody's house. We were, they wanted everybody to go in and bust them at the same time, but a lot of what was said uh, that they based that on, to me, didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And there was about four of us that didn't think that the Tucson people actually did it. Mm -hmm. And so the commander at the time, you know, he basically said that's ludicrous that you would think that. I mean, everything points to them. And my answer was, well, I'm Detective Ludicrous because (laughs) I don't think they did it. Mm -hmm. And then he would say, well, how do they know the nun was dressed in white? And I'd say, it's in the newspaper. Everything was released, and you can't release independent details out to the public. Right. Because then you're chasing that uh, when it comes around. Then you have to go find that person and say, where did you hear this? Mm -hmm. And it goes on and on and on. So Mm -hmm. we were more or less pulled from the case, and... uh, we started researching. He wanted me to tell him why we didn't believe that they were involved. So we started researching, and there were volumes of reports. And our job every day was to go through and go through all the interviews, everything that happened, and tell him why we don't believe they, that the Tucson people did it. Well, one particular day, I found uh, a supplement in there, and it was on a murder at Bartlett Lake. Mm -hmm. And I read it. The person involved was one of the the two people that were actually arrested for the Buddhist murders. Mm -hmm. And we had, our group had our eye on them. So it was a murder at Bartlett Lake where a woman was killed. They had made an arrest and the arrest they made was a transient type person. And we later determined that he was probably in the bushes watching it happen. So oh. he had what we would say is independent knowledge. Uh-huh. So as I read the report, uh, our guys the, with our office or whichever office interviewed these people glossed over this. Mm. And they had good independent knowledge of the crime at Bartlett Lake. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went to the chief and the commander. I said, did you look at this? Do you know about this report? And he said, yeah, we know about it, but we ruled it out. So 
I took it farther. I went over to the homicide unit because we were pulled into a task force, so we were away from our regular homicide unit. Mm -hmm. So I went over there and talked to the lieutenant and said, do you know about this, all this information here? And he said, we know about it, but we ruled it out. Don't worry about it. So I took it a step farther, and I took it to the case agent for that case. Mm -hmm. And he, I said, Don, do you know about this? And he said, I know about it, but I'm not supposed to know about it. Ah. So they were all focused on what they were doing in Tucson. Mm -hmm. That was a sidetrack. And so I took it, and we did a search warrant on the subject's house. Mm -hmm. We found evidence of the murder at Bartlett Lake at his house mm -hmm. and his girlfriend's house. So they had made an arrest, and we had the actual killers. Wow. And so that, that uh, didn't make me real popular for a while. But, uh, <laughs> well, I, I would say it makes you popular with people that were falsely accused of it. Uh, but um, I think that what I hear is that you were trusting your gut, you were trusting mm -hmm. your feelings. And that's actually feminine energy, that's spiritual energy. No one could accuse Dom Shorts of having any feminine energy. <laughs> <laughs> However, that is the difference in energy. And it is the energy that policemen do use when they are listening to their gut, having a gut reaction, knowing what they're doing and how they're feeling it. So um, I think it's great that you stick to your guns, no pun intended, and that you follow through with what your gut is saying. And as it worked out, that individual, along with uh, uh, Jonathan Duty, I believe it was, that uh, we found evidence, we found the weapons, we tied them into the temple murders. Mm -hmm. They were arrested for it. Uh, Tucson 4, you know, were just mm -hmm. trying to make a name or whatever they were doing. Whatever but, they were doing. The 15 minutes of fame, whatever people correct. do. You so. know? But in all of it, uh, the Buddhist monks kept their spiritual enlightened place of being while it all happened. What was the reason that they killed them? Was there a reason for it? It was a simple robbery. Sim uh, simple robbery. And, and that's what they went in for. Hmm. And then they just went off the deep end and executed them all. Unbelievable. And, and it was such a high-profile case. I mean... You know, being Buddhist monks, uh, everyone was involved in it. So it was hope, so high profile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That it was brutal. But yeah. we finally got them, and they're in prison today. Wow. And then let's talk about the meat tenderizer <laughs> <laughs> murder. Well, it must have been interesting for you to be on the TV show. Did I mean, did you like being on the TV? Was What did that feel like? Was it? cool or was it a pain or what was it it was at the it could have been more cool at the time it was kind of a pain because i was working at the federal court and they wanted to do this tv show and they wanted me to take them to prescott and show them the crime scene and and it would have taken days mm -hmm. and 
I was doing this for them. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, I'm not going to go to Prescott, but I will talk to you about it. Mm-hmm. So that's how we ended up doing the show as it is. Mm-hmm. And it was a pretty good show. The reenactment was awesome on that show. I thought it was a, a good show. You were on it, of course, talking, but I thought it was a good show. It's amazing to me, though, that someone like this uh, person that's now in Florence mm-hmm. um, could victimize people so easily and without effort, like a truly a psychopath, but yet bonded with you. How did you do that, Tom? How did you get him to bond with you to tell you about it? Well, at the time of the murder, he was a drug dealer and a big drug user. Uh, so luckily, when I talked to him, he wasn't in that state of mind. But I, we knew that the the missing man was gone missing. We were out there looking for him. We got a phone call on his murder, and it was from the suspect's girlfriend. Mm -hmm. So she told us her side of it, and that's where, you know, this guy had picked up on her and uh, the suspect in this, Mike Murdaugh. She went home. She told him, and he said, well, give that guy a call. Invite him out at the house. Mm -hmm. So this guy showed up at the house. Innocently thinking that he's... Yeah, innocently, but, but not. for other reasons. Got it, okay. But, so then anyways, he was met with uh, a couple guys and a couple guns, and they took him out to their shop out in the garage. They put him in the trunk of a car, and they would take him out about every hour and beat him for a while and then put him back in the trunk of the car, and it was a pretty bloody mess out there. And the ultimate was in the morning he took him out and he hit him over the back of the head beat him with a meat tenderizer <laughs> hence the name yes. meat tenderizer yes. and so then mike was going to uh, dispose of the body so he rides horses he took the body put it in the horse trailer and he drove to prescott and was going to dispose of the body so he did that he dismembered the gentleman he cut his fingerprint pads off, pulled his teeth. He, he did everything that a good murderer does. And uh, he was out riding his horse, and the horse picked up a stone in his, in his hoof, in, mm-hmm. his, in his shoe. And so Mike takes his knife out, and he's digging the stone out, and he slips, and he stabs himself in the leg. God, karma's a bitch. I know. It was great. <laughs> so we, uh, he drove himself to the hospital. And they admitted him. And meanwhile, we're looking for him. And the hit came up that he's in the hospital in Prescott. So my partner and I showed up at the hospital. And as soon as we walked in the door, he looked at me and he said, did she clean up the garage? And I said, (laughs) no, she didn't. He said, okay. So we started talking. And it's kind of always been my personality that... These people want to talk to me. I, I don't know why. They just do. I, and he just laid out the whole story like we were best friends. Mm-hmm. He drew me a map of where he buried parts of the body. He gave me the whole story. So we went out and uh, dug up the, where he buried the parts. And then I had to go back to the hospital. We held him there. And uh, 
So I go back to the hospital, and I'm going to ride down in the ambulance with him because we're going to book him into County Hospital in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And, and it was like we were best friends. Hmm. He, he just told me everything he could tell me. So we get in the ambulance, and we're driving down to Phoenix. And I said, Mike, is there anything else you want to tell me? He said, yeah, Tom, I killed another guy a couple weeks ago ah. and dumped him in the canal. Wow. So I... Wow. I got on the phone and called Peoria and said, do you have a floater? You know, someone that's... <laughs> floater. Oh, geez. And uh, they said, well, yes, we do. So <laughs> so they, he got uh, convicted on that one also. Wow. Wow. And he's in Florence mm-hmm. and will be there for the rest of his life? Or, I mean, he'll be in the prison system for the rest of his life, whether it's Florence or not. Correct. As will his girlfriend, who was part and parcel to this. Oh. Uh, she didn't have a hands-on, so she'll... There's a light at the end of her tunnel, mm. but uh, mm. he's, he'll be there forever. Interesting. As a medium, um, I've talked to murder victims um, and have their families in to talk with me. And um, there's something that uh, I think will surprise many people when I say this. I have never talked to a murder victim that did not forgive their murderer. Mm. Uh, It's interesting. interesting. You know, they will always say that they have forgiven it. And I think it must be, you know, uh, the, the, uh, one of the, the tickets that gets us to heaven is to have that level of forgiveness no matter what. Sure. And, of course, no one tells me it sucks over there. So, you know, uh, but they're there and, and with some loved ones and some family members. But forgiveness is something that they always say, um, even if it's a stranger murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, stranger to stranger murder rather usually of course as uh, as i'm not i'm not i'm singing to the choir but <clears throat> usually murder is with people that know each other right it can be it can go yeah, either way yeah, but usually yeah it's. usually so i just find it interesting that there's always that level of forgiveness so interesting yeah so the mafia in phoenix that was a interesting case and it started out with a Body buried at Bartlett Lake again. Hmm. That lake gets a lot of action it, out there. It does. <laughs> so my partner and I again went out there and spent a Saturday morning digging up the body. And we finally, it, he had no ID or anything on him. He'd been buried for a month or two, so he was in pretty bad shape. But uh, we finally got him identified, and he was a gentleman in Scottsdale. Mm-hmm. And so we went to his apartment and went through trying to identify all his associates, what he was doing. And he sold uh, antiques. He, he would transfer them. He'd, you know, he, he was into his antiques and probably some transferring of drugs and money and things like that because mm-hmm. he was targeted for a reason. Mm-hmm. But he had a phone directory, and we went through everybody in his directory and made contact with him back then it's not like it is today with all the you know the it and everything so we we actually had to go out and talk to all these people and there was one name on there it was giuseppe joe callo Mm -hmm. who owned a italian restaurant up here in uh, scottsdale Mm -hmm. so that was the last person on there to talk to so i went out to his restaurant and went to the bar manager and said, I need to talk to Joe. And he said, well, Joe's not here right now. 
give me your card and I'll have you call him. So I did, and I got no call, of course. So I waited and I went out again, and of course Joe wasn't there. I talked to the, the bar person and he said, well, Joe's not here, he's at the funeral of his business partners. <sighs> so that a light came on there. Yeah. So I said, okay, well, have him call me. So I started following up with uh, Pinal County. Uh, there was an older couple out there that had been murdered, and oddly enough, they were Joe Callow's business partners in oh. this restaurant. Mm. So I had ballistics done on my guy at Bartlett Lake and identified the caliber and everything about it. So I called Pinal County, and we got together, and... I said, you got, you're working a double murder. Uh, how were they killed? And he said, well, they were shot. I said, do you have ballistics? Do you have the projectiles? And they said, well, yes, we do. So we compared them, and we got a match. Mm -hmm. So this individual at Bartlett Lake and Joe's business partners were now all killed by the same, same weapon. Same gun. So, and that started the investigation and it, it was just went from there, and we started linking. I started getting into Joe's background, talking to him, and oddly enough, he was associated with a painter. Mm -hmm. And the painter was actually the trigger man in this. Oh. Joe, we associated him with the local mafia, mm -hmm. most of the restaurants in town he was well-known with. And so and his painter friend uh, was the trigger man. And luckily, I got into the painter follow-up on him, and his wife was a legal representative for a local attorney. Mm -hmm. And so we hit her with a search warrant and found a diary. Mm -hmm. She had gotten the painter, Jim Majors, out of prison. That's how she met him. She's one of these women that would write to inmates. And, right, right. And so she, they hooked up, and she got them out of prison, and they got married and fell in love. And as the marriage progressed, she knew Joe Callow. Mm -hmm. She knew that they were going out at night. She, her thoughts were her husband's cheating on her. Uh -huh. So being a good little uh, record keeper yes. that she is, yes. she kept a diary. And she kept daily movement on him, what time he left, who he's with, wow. how he's dressed. And so we were able to link reading the diary the night of my murder at Bartlett Lake. Uh, he comes home at 3 o'clock in the morning with jewelry, clothing, and a shovel. Huh. And she documented all that in her diary. Hmm. So... I knew then that he was our guy yeah. on that, and as it progressed, then we uh, we had him on that one. And in reading the diary, there was numerous other murders around the valley. There was one in Phoenix. There was a double murder in Scottsdale. There was that she had documented. So I ran the records, and they described she described what she found. When he came home, I found a murder to match it, and so then I would call the local agency, whether it's Scottsdale or who it was, and say, 
look, we've got this guy on these murders. You've got to double your work and on mm-hmm. and on. So you have ballistics, and so we'd match them, and they all match. So mm-hmm. we linked, we linked him in a ton of murders. And oddly enough, while I was doing the search warrant at his house, he called, and he was out of state. Uh-huh. Uh, so he called, and his wife tells him, and I talked to him, we're doing a search warrant here, you need to come home. Well, he was out in California, and this guy, uh, being an ex-con, he was big into drugs, and he was big into younger women and drug dealers, mm-hmm. up-and-coming drug dealers. Mm-hmm. So he had got in with this group of young people. He asked this one kid, do you know any drug dealers out in California? He said, oh, yeah. And he said, well, set up a drug deal. We'll go out. We'll take their money. We'll take their drugs. We'll kill them. We'll fly back. So he was out there doing just that Oh wow! while we were doing a search warrant at his house. Wow, wow. So they did it, and they flew home. Uh, once he gets back, he hooks up with Joe Callow, and they take that kid out in the desert, out in New River, and they shoot him and bury him. Hmm. And so in the interviews with Joe Callow, Joe Callow was a person that we bonded again. He would tell me, I swear to God, that's all I know. He would go on and on and on. And he told me about all the murders and made him out a victim. Mm -hmm. And this interview went on for three days. And it was so interesting because his wife hired him an attorney, a high-profile attorney who showed up at my office. And so I went out and met with him, and he said, his wife hired me to be his to represent him and I said well he didn't ask for an attorney so you just go on home and we'll finish up here right he didn't ask for you she did right and so it turned out he made out he was afraid of this painter and I said well I'll tell you what I'll give you protection until we get these interviews done so I assigned a detective to spend the night with them Mm -hmm. and bring him in the next morning and he'd tell me more about the murders And we get all done, and once again, is there anything else that you want to tell me? He said, yeah, there's one more. He said, we killed that kid, and we buried him out in New River. I said, can you show me where it was at? And he said, I'll take you out there. You know, swear to God, that's all. So we drive out there, and sure enough, here's the the last body in that. Mm. So it it came together pretty well. Mm. Well, I always say to people when they talk to me about evil spirits, that there's not evil spirits. There's just evil people. Amen. And uh, that, that kind of confirms to me that the earth plane is hell. And that here we are in hell trying to do the best we can to be maintain a level of spirituality and a connection with God. And this is where we work out all that, you know, uh, third dimensional frequency garbage that we work out. And on the whole spectrum of how human beings are, you get that spectrum of the, the darkest of the dark, right? You do. So I will tell you, I, I went to a restaurant because my uh, the restaurant owner was a client of mine, and she had a spirit that was bothering her, and the restaurant was built on another restaurant uh, that had been torn down that was a mafia restaurant. So she figured that the spirit that was bothering her was a mafia guy. And I went out to the restaurant to clear it, 
and usually I'm not, I'm, I'm never afraid. I, I'm, ne- I'm never afraid. I used to be afraid when I was young because I had a lot of, you know, clatter from the other side of the veil, but I'm never afraid anymore. And I said to this guy, you know, you got to go into the light and, and stuff. And he said, you leave me alone or I'll follow you home. So this is the closest I've gotten to a, an evil spirit. And he hadn't, you know, transitioned yet. So I said, you follow me home MF are the initials I used, (laughs) and you'll have to deal with somebody higher than me. So I thought he left, but she called me, and the the restaurant owner is an adorable young lady. Uh, She called me back. She said, he's still here. So I went back out, and turns out that he wasn't attached to the place because she thought he was uh, buried under the walk-in cooler. He was attached to her because he was interested in her. So finally, I got him to agree to take off and go where he needed to go, and she hasn't had any problems since. So that's, that's my dead brush with the mafia. My live brush with the mafia, Tom, was my, uh, the father of my children went to high school with a guy by the name of Joey Riolo, and when we got out of the service, Joey Riolo offered John a, a job at a dress shop in upstate New York. And turns out that the dress shop was owned by Louis Marconi, and it was part of the Russell Buffalino family. Oh, <laughs> so when I divorced John, I had the FBI call me up to the FBI building in Binghamton, New York, and show me surveillance photos. Do you know this man? Uh, yeah, that's my son's godfather. Do you know this man? Uh, yeah, that's my other son's <laughs> godfather. But apparently John didn't know much, and neither did I, so they they left him alone. Nobody got killed, and John just got left with the taxes. <laughs> nice, nice. I think the dress companies were laundering money, obviously. So. I know that's that's a tough way to go. And I, during that case, I worked at forever and trying to link. And I, I believe there's probably more murders out there that were linked to them mm-hmm. that I, I didn't get. Mm-hmm. But I know that it was on the front page of the paper that it was, you know, mafia murders in mm-hmm. Phoenix mm-hmm. and. So that that point, I got to where I watched my mirrors quite a bit going home mm-hmm. because I knew that they probably weren't real fond of me at that point. Yeah, I bet not. Mm-hmm. I bet not. Well, I'll tell you what, Tom. I think that, you know, the way that you have trusted your gut and maintained the integrity of who you are as a human during the course of bumping up against all kind of evil makes you a pretty special person. And one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on was because I want people to understand that evil does not have to taint you. You can still be a good person, even if you're dealing with the, 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 the bad and the ugly, and still be a stand-up guy and a good person. And you've been a real good friend to us. And so I really appreciate you talking with us today and, and telling us a little bit about your experience and so um, tell me, is there anything else that, that you want to say about, you know, dealing with, with bad people that makes you be able to sustain yourself as a spiritual person? Well, I've always, people have always asked me how I dealt with this. And I know when we'd get called out on a case, and I can remember one in particular, and we had a saying that you can see it from here, but... Like I explained, everybody has their idea of what happened here. I went to one scene out in the desert, and I actually laid down on the ground mm-hmm. uh, and got a feeling for what happened there. And mm-hmm. it, it went back to, you can see it from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you get involved with families. You want to solve it for them. Uh, I can also say that 
as I worked my cases, I would have pictures of the victims, mm -hmm. and I would tape them to the dash of my car mm -hmm. so that while I'm out driving, I would always think about that person and think, what else could I do, and what haven't I done? Uh, so you were tapping into the energy. I was on a cold case for the Phoenix PD once, and I, I went into the house where the crime scene was, and I said, I want to lay down right here. And the policeman said, oh, that's where the first body was. So you're actually doing mediumship work while you're doing that, <laughs> that, that sheriff work, Tom. That, you know that? Like, that's pretty cool. I love to hear that, that you would lay down like that and feel that energy. That's pretty, go that's pretty cool. And who knew, right? And who, and who knew? The medium and the sheriff. Uh, thank you all for uh, joining us, and thank you, Tom, for enlightening us about how to stay light when you're dealing with the dark. Have a great day, everybody. Okay.